morning. We have two readings. First readings from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 26. The two angels came to Sodom, Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow who came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons in law sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So... Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favour also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
Our next reading is from Luke chapter 17. Okay, verses 20 to 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will decide to see one of the, di- one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look, there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the house step with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people to hear it. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and you reveal yourself to us and we thank you for this part of your word that your son Jesus has spoken to us about the coming day. So help us to hear and to respond. Help us to be those who hear your word and are doers, not just hearers only. Especially today, help us to find appropriate action and responses to live in the light of your word. And I pray, Father, for myself, help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. And in all these things, we pray that you would be glorified and that you would magnify your glory and your joy in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. And welcome aboard Qantas Flight 252, heading from Brisbane towards Hobart, Tasmania. We are now going to be demonstrating the safety features on this aircraft. Please pay attention as these may differ from an aircraft you have flown on before. Okay, before I go on, be honest. How many of us continue to pay attention to what, uh, when that announcement continues on? How many of us have counted the seats between us and the closest exit down the aisle? Uh, How many of us remember that we need to help little children put on their masks before we put on our own? Or is it the other way around? How many of us have heard this message time and time again, or remember what it was like to hear that message time and time again, but have paid less attention to it with each passing time? 
Friends, we have spent an enormous amount of time this year, more than I can remember, hearing messages of judgment again and again. We have just gone through 13 sermons in the book in the massive prophet Ezekiel, nine of which focus in on the topic of judgment. And then when we finished the book of Ezekiel, we thought, well, this is the year to spend looking at weird imagery in the Bible. So we looked at Revelation chapter 12 to 14, and again, we had a healthy dose of judgment in there as well. And so when we turned to the Gospel of Luke, well, for most of us, it felt like such a nice relief, a chance to slow down a smaller portion of Scripture to hear the love and kindness and grace of Jesus. Well, I have some bad news. Because today is another message of judgment. And why is it that I always get these messages, Ben? I don't know. Uh, But friends, don't let your eyes or your ears glaze over. This is not another pre-flight safety announcement that we need to go through the motions of listening to. We need to pay close attention to what Jesus is saying here. But before that, let's recap, recap briefly where we are. Now, remember last week we started on a journey the final journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem. In Luke 17 onwards, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem for the final time because when he gets there, his death will come shortly afterwards. Every step he now takes, he is taking willingly, pushing himself forward towards pain, agony, exhaustion, and the cross. So in these final chapters, Jesus is going to say some critical things and some crucial things for us to hear about his kingdom. Now, last week we learned that Jesus is the king, the uh, the king of God's kingdom. And so we must respond to King Jesus with saving faith. And we saw how one leper did just that. He was healed of his disease, and then he actually returned to Jesus to praise and to give him thanks. And a great example for us all. And then in the final verse, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would appear. We read that again earlier from verse 20, and Jesus responded in a way which I think surprised a number of us here. He said this, remember, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's already here. It's present right now. What did Jesus mean by that? What did he mean that the kingdom of God is present right now? Well, to put it simply, the kingdom of God is wherever God's king presently is. Jesus is God's king, and here he was present with them. So it's true, the kingdom of God was with them. But this is, it was a bit surprising to us because I think, rightly so, that when we hear the phrase kingdom of God, we have a very big picture view of the kingdom in mind. We often think of the picture of God's kingdom at the end, right? The place where God's people will live in God's place under his rule and authority forever and ever. When Jesus, God's king, will wipe away, he will return to wipe away sin and death and make all things new. It's true that the kingdom was present with them because God's king was there, but it's also true that God's kingdom is to come. Uh, You'll sometimes hear this phrase uh, uh, if you're with us for long enough, but we call this the now and not yet of the Bible. The kingdom is now here, and yet it is also to come. Well, in today's passage, Jesus is going to point forward to the day when that bigger picture of the kingdom will come, the day when Jesus, the king who reigns over all, 
when he will return to usher in his kingdom, the place where God's people will live under his rule and uh, uh, in his place under his rule and authority forever and ever. Now, as you heard in the reading, the passage itself is primarily concerned with what that day will look like, the day when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes back. And so let's turn to our passage and look at the detail of the day itself. And so after talking to the Pharisees, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples, and we're going to focus in on the passage and work out what the point of what these details are saying. So Jesus says to his disciples in verse 22, that the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. There will come a time in the future when you will yearn with all of your heart to see the future kingdom. But the days of the Son of Man is a way of speaking about that future time, the days of Jesus' rule and reign, the second coming and the forever peace that he will bring in. Now, Jesus, you notice that Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. What does that phrase mean? What is the phrase Son of Man? Why does he keep calling himself the Son of Man? Well, you remember when we looked at the book of Ezekiel, you may have noticed that God refers to Ezekiel constantly as Son of Man. That is, the Son of a man, a human person. But the phrase Son of Man takes on a more epic picture in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, a human-like figure, one like a son of man, approaches the throne of God himself, and he is personally handed all the authority of God to act and to judge. Daniel 7 sets up this Mount Everest hope that in the Bible one day a man, a human, will come along and reign as God's perfect king forever and ever with all of God's authority. So Jesus appears on the scene and he starts calling himself the Son of Man. Which definition does he mean? For those who have ears to hear, he may be that Daniel 7, Son of Man. But for those who do not have ears to hear, is he referring to himself merely as a mortal? Which means before we go on, before we go on any further, I need to ask you, Who is Jesus to you this morning? Is Jesus just another historical figure, another man who has come and gone? Or is Jesus something bigger, something more epic, none other than God's King himself? Who is the Son of Man to you? The answer to that question is not trivial. And friends, if you have not settled that answer this morning, then, and if you haven't worked out if Jesus really is the king that he says he is, and if Jesus is not the king that you are following, and if you don't have certainty of that, then please pay close attention to what he says this morning. This is not the time for our eyes and our ears to glaze over. Pay attention now. Because the first thing that Jesus is saying about the coming day is that it will be obvious for all to see. In verse 23, Jesus does not, says, basically, do not be deceived. Uh, there are going to be people who say, Jesus is coming here, or look over there. That is a, a sign of his coming. But do not listen to them. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 23. Read it with me at the end of verse 23. Do not go out or follow them. 
So many times we hear of Christians who claim some prophecy, some special message from God that this or that is going to happen. This is a sign of his return. This is a a special message that I have received from God that no one else has received, right? Constantly throughout the centuries, we've heard all of this. We've seen predictions of the coming of Jesus being made again and again and again, all of them wrong. Jesus is saying here, be on guard. Do not pay attention. Do not pay attention to that sort of stuff, no matter how convincing it might sound, no matter how emotional or authentic the message seems, it's not real. Why? Because when Jesus returns, it will be super, super, super obvious. The day will be like a massive lightning storm. Have a look at verse 24. Read with me verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. If you haven't noticed uh, already, it is now officially summer in Brisbane. I once heard a radio announcer say that there are only two seasons in Brisbane, hot and not so hot. Well, the heat has arrived, and man, the humidity is killer. Uh, And with this heat comes something that Brisbane is actually quite famous for, summer storms. Usually in the afternoon, but sometimes in the evening. Now, I love a good storm. I especially love turning off all the lights in the evening if the storm is rolling over. I love turning off all the lights and then crawling into the safety of my office to watch the lightning and the rain with my kids. And there's that beautiful moment in a lightning storm, you know, when it's right above you and the lightning strikes really close by, like you can tell one of my neighbor's house has just got hit. And when that lightning is so close, for a split second, everything lights up as if it were daytime. Jesus says that when he returns, it will be like that. Obvious, lighting up everything for everyone to see. There will be no secret or hidden return. There will be nothing subtle about it. When Jesus returns, everyone will know that he has come. The obviousness of the day helps explain a very strange little passage, well, a very strange way that this passage ends uh, in verse 37. So have a look at verse 37 with me. Uh, And they, the disciples, said to Jesus, Where, Lord? That is, where will these things happen? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, Jesus is saying here that this day of his coming will be obvious. Just like the lightning lights up an evening sky, and just like when you see circling vultures in the sky, you know that a carcass is nearby. But first, Jesus, uh, before that day happens, something else has to happen. Something else has to happen. In verse 25, Jesus says that before this great and epic day, he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is actually now the fifth time, number five, that Jesus has mentioned his, and predicted his impending death and suffering in the Gospel of Luke. Only when Jesus has suffered will he be crowned king. One of the uh, biggest moments uh, in a nation's life is when a king or queen is crowned. Uh, I wasn't born when Queen Elizabeth was crowned uh, Queen of England uh, and the Commonwealth. 
I actually found out recently that if you're an Australian citizen, uh, I'm sorry if you're PR, it, 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 I don't think it counts. Only if you're an Australian citizen, you are legally entitled to a free framed photo of the Queen. I have no idea how you get hold of that. Jono was like, oh, I'm keen. I think you've got to talk to your local Minister of Parliament and request it, and then they send it to you. So if you're looking for a Christmas present, that's <laughs> uh, an idea. Now, I wasn't around, I wasn't born when Queen Elizabeth was crowned Queen of England, but I might be around when her son Charles gets crowned. And that day, that day that happens, it'll be a day filled with ceremony and pomp and majesty. There'll be royal robes of deep red and purple. Uh, there'll be gold. She's holding a, looks like a bomb and a stick. I don't know what those things are, but they look important, right? Um, and at the height of the ceremony, a crown will be placed on Charles's head. Now, for Jesus and his coronation as king, it's also coming. It's coming in the Gospel of Luke, but in an upside-down way, in a way in which only the God's kingdom could operate. The coronation of Jesus happens on the cross. He will not wear a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. People will not adore and praise him. They will mock and spit at him. He will not stand in regal majesty. He will bow his head in death. And he will die for you and me. He will die for the forgiveness of our sins. And he will die so that you will live. And if you trust Jesus and live for him, then you will see Jesus return on this day the day of the Son of Man, obviously, and in glory for all the world to see. But not everyone is going to catch it. Not everyone will be ready for it. The day's coming will be obvious for all to see, but not everyone will be looking for his return. The timing of his return is likened to two Old Testament stories uh, next in our passage, two stories of judgment that we, the reader, knows is coming but catches everyone else by surprise. And so, first in verse 26, 27, the day's coming is likened to the days of Noah. Have a look with me again at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, the story of Noah can be found in Genesis 6 to 9. And for those who will be around next year, you know, we're going to be preaching through uh, Genesis 1 to 12 in the first half of the year. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 opens with deep and profound sadness. The world that God created only five chapters earlier is now saturated with corruption. Human sin entered the world in Genesis 3, but now it has spread through all of humanity. Now the world is filled with injustice and violence. And the author of Genesis tells us that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Every motive, every intention, every, every thought is skewed towards selfishness, to disobedience to God and rebellion against God. It's so bad that at the start of this story in Genesis 6, God is grieved that he made humanity. 
and his solution is to wipe it all away. Wipe the slate clean, start again. He's going to send a flood to destroy the earth. Remember, on day three of creation, God separated the land from the waters. But because of the sinfulness of humanity, that is going to be reversed. Uncreation, decreation. We know that in the story, God looks upon Noah with favor. Right? So Noah and his family are spared. He spends time building an ark, a big boat, to save his family and animals. But here's the thing. What were other people doing in the lead up to the storm? What were they doing as they saw Noah off in the corner building his own ark? Have a look again at verse 27. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and definitely nothing wrong with marrying and being given in marriage. I'll be doing that this afternoon, tonight at a wedding of Brendan and KC. Uh, they were actually here in the first service. I'm surprised. I was like amazed. Brendan was like sitting there in a t-shirt and shorts. How relaxed was he? I'll be marrying them and then I'll be eating and drinking with joy. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The point here, though, is that people were not aware. They were carrying on life as usual. And in the light of what was to come, you would think that there would be different actions, something more appropriate in the light of the judgment to come. The same thing in verse 28, in the days of Lot. Have a look at verse 28 again with me. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Now, Lot's story comes a little bit later after Genesis 12, which we won't look at next year. But Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Now, the terrible story of Lot and his family was read out to us in Genesis 19. Lot showed hospitality towards two traveling strangers and it turns out that those two men were angels of God. But at night, as they were sitting down to eat, the men of the town surround Lot's home. They come with evil intentions in their hearts because they want to gang rape the angels and they threaten violence on anyone who would stop them. So the angels strike the gang with blindness and they tell Lot's family to flee because judge, the God will judge the city the next morning. Judgment comes the next morning. But again, notice what everyone else is in the city is doing moments before the fire and sulfur rained down. They were eating and they were drinking. They were buying and selling. They were planting and building. Again, nothing inherently wrong with these things. And in any other context of these life activities, these life activities are good and faithful to carry on. But in the context of certain judgment, if they knew what was to come, would you not expect them to be prepared? Would you not expect them to flee with Lot and his wife? See, the point of these two examples is found in verse 30. In the same way that the people in Noah's day were unprepared, in the same way that the people in Lot's day were unprepared, so will our world be unprepared for the return of Jesus. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, if you say you follow Jesus, then we need to be reminded that we are not to be like everyone else. We have the information that the world does not have, and so we must act 
accordingly. So verse 31 starts on that day, a constant refrain in this section, reminding us that what reminding us what the world will do and what Christians must do on that same day. So verse 31, have a look again at verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, this verse, little verse needs a little bit of explaining because I don't think many of us spend a lot of time hanging out on our roof. Has anyone actually ever walked on their roof? It's really scary because the angle is like way steeper than you expect. And if you go up with thongs on, that's just a bad idea, right? So what's happening here? So in the time of Jesus, a normal house in Jerusalem looked a little bit like this, okay? Really small. Uh, On the inside, you might have a little small court area for the animals that you had. Uh, You might have a small kitchen and perhaps a sleeping area. Uh, And your roof would be flat, right? Where's the living room? Where's the TV room, right? Where's the man cave? It's not there. The roof would be flat, and you notice that you can actually have access to it via stairs on the side. Because that's the rooftop would be an open area where you would sit and eat and lounge. Right? That was your living area, so to speak. Do so you remember that story in Mark chapter 2 where the friends, with the, par- the, the friends who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, right? they couldn't get into the house, so what did they do? They walked to the top, they smashed a hole in the roof, and then they lowered their friend down. That's how it would have worked. So here's the thing. Jesus is saying that on that day of his return, if you happen to be up on the roof, don't run downstairs to gather up your goods. A similar idea is in the second half of verse 31. If you're out in the field plowing away and Jesus returns, don't turn back. That is, don't run home to go and grab your stuff. What's going on here? The answer is in verse 32, the very little verse 32. Have a look at that. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, so here's what's going on. I've got to do another flashback as we go for a moment. We've got to head back to Genesis 19. Remember, Lot's house is surrounded by that gang with evil intentions. The angels strike them blind and warn the family that in the morning God God was going to destroy the city. That morning, the angels wake Lot up and his family Uh, his wife, and urge them to leave. But here's the thing. Lot starts to dither. He he starts to linger. He's slow to move. He's been warned that in any minute now, there is coming danger, but the warning is in his ears and hasn't sunk to his heart. He is slow to move. And so the angels grab him and his wife and his family by the hands and they rush them out of the city. And as as they're running off, the angel warns them, keep running, do not look back or stop. But sure enough, as the sulfur and the fire rains down, as Lot and his wife are running away, she stops, turns around and looks back. And in judgment, she is turned into a pillar of salt. Why? I've seen this moment played out a, a few times uh, in reenactments on those kind of made-for-TV Bible you know, shows. Uh, and I think each time they do it, they get it wrong. 
Lot and his wife, they're, they're often uh, kind of displayed on these shows as kind of running away and she, she just glances back and immediately she turns to salt. Or, you know, there's a thunderous explosion and the shock of it makes her turn around to see what happens and then, bam, turns into salt, right? I, there's one which was really cool where it, it, the, she looks and then the hardening starts at her eyes and it turns to salt and then it, the CG just does all that as she goes down, right? What's actually happening here? I don't think those TV shows quite have it right. I think how Jesus uses this story here actually shows us and helps us work out what really happened with her. See, Lot's wife stopped and turned around. She looked back, and I think she looked back because she was mourning the loss of her property. She was crying and grieving the destruction of all that she owned. I only noticed this last night as I was rereading the Genesis story that Lot actually goes to his future sons-in-law. His daughters are not married yet. He goes to them and says to them, get up, we need to get going because judgment is coming. And they laugh at him thinking it's a joke. Is Lot's wife standing there looking back, grieving the loss of two potential sons? Her treasure was in the city, and that is where her heart truly was. Jesus warns us, the day of his return will reveal what you truly love in your heart, what you will be drawn to when he returns. When your heart's love is threatened or you're afraid that you're going to lose it now because Jesus is appearing, will you run to defend it and protect it? What is your true love? What is it that you love and desire more than Jesus himself? The lure and the pull of this world is so strong. Uh, the, The urge and temptation to turn back and look at it can be overwhelming. There's a couple of teens here, uh, quite a few uni students, right? When you're younger, you think that following Jesus is the best thing. Why would anyone want anyone else or anything else? Sure, following Jesus can be challenging, but he himself more than makes up for it. But then you get older and you start earning money, and it's intoxicating. As you watch the bank balance just keep bumping up if you're not spending it as soon as it comes in. And as soon as you start to see the number rise, you begin crunching other numbers because you're matching your bank account balance with the, house, the price of a house or the price of a car or whatever. And you save up and you buy it and because you bought it with your own money, it's your baby. Well, you get older And maybe you start to date someone. A lot of single people here feeling that kind of isolation of singleness. But then you get into a relationship and life just cannot get any better. You would sacrifice anything for this person you love. And then you become a parent, God willing, and you have kids. And as you get older, you get these reminders of what they were like when they were younger. How cute and adorable they were. Do you want to know what the cutest smile in the world is? It's the smile of your child when they only had four teeth. (laughs) Two at the top and two at the bottom. It just melts your heart. 
Facebook and Google are evil, like because they give me these reminders daily of what my kids were like. You know, I'm I'm living in that kind of technological age where I just keep taking photos of my kids on my phone, and you know, this year, this day, two years ago, this is what they look like. This day, three years ago, this is what they look like. And you just you look at these photos, and I look at them, and my affection for my kids just grows exponentially. You so quickly forget that Ellie was so difficult at times, that she was so sassy. Uh, you forget that Janessa was just a really difficult eater. And Jaden, well, he was perfect, but that's another story, right? And you look at these photos and your affection grows and in your mind you are thinking, I will do anything for these kids. I will move my family's house in order to get them closer to a better school. I will take on a second job to make sure I can pay for their education. I will sacrifice anything for this person. Maybe your heart's greatest love may even be just your own personal sense of peace and time. You value above all else being able to do whatever you want in the time that you have. And so anything that impinges on that or anything that threatens to take that away, you you will defend fiercely. Whatever it is, money, possessions, loved ones in your families, your own personal space or time. And if it's none of those things, if they don't resonate, there is definitely something that you hold on to. Ask yourself if these compete for your greatest affection and desire. Are these more important, more central to you than following Jesus? Let us listen very carefully and soberly to the words of Jesus in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Read the first part of that verse again slowly. Whoever wants to keep what they have in this life, whoever loves their desires and their treasures in this life, whoever wants to turn back to them, they will lose their lives. You notice there's no in-between here. There's no gray area here. Jesus puts this into black and white. To preserve your life is to hold on to your position in this world, to hold on to the possessions this life has to offer. But you will lose it all in the end if you try to do that. If you chase your dreams, you may end up catching them only to lose eternity in the process. If you turn back to the things of this world, whether it be your possessions or your relationships, if you turn back to these things and you turn your back on Jesus, you will lose your life. Remember Lot's wife. So then how do you save your life? You do it in the most backward way imaginable. Read again the second half of verse 33. Whoever loses his life will keep it. What does it mean to lose your life? If I, if I try to hold on to my life and I will actually end up losing it, what does it mean to lose my life in order to save it? That is desperate information that we need to know. To lose your life is to give your life away, to commit your whole life to living for and following Jesus, to offer your time and your talents in the service and sacrifice of his kingdom and others. 
only when we let go of what this earth has to offer will we gain what heaven has to give. Or in the immortal words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The day when Jesus returns will be a day that reveals what's our true heart's love. So what will be revealed for you? Because when that day arrives, it will be too late. And the impact of that day is super clear in verses 34 and 35. It will be a day of division. I'm looking at verse 34, 35. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus here is not talking about some secret rapture of believers. And in context, it's clear that Jesus is speaking about the division between believers and unbelievers. Believers who will be taken away to salvation and non-believers who will be left for final judgment. Which is why verse 37, that picture of gruesome judgment is there. The judgment of non-believers, so clear and so obvious for all to see with the vultures circling around them. You notice in verse 34 that Jesus now speaks of in that night, not in that day. Right? He said the day, the day, the day, all through this section, but now it's nighttime. Why is that? Because this day of division and judgment will be a dark day. But as night always gives way to morning, the, day, the dawn of the Son of Man's forever kingdom reign will also follow. Friends, how, how ready are you for all of this? Are you ready for the clear division that will happen when Jesus returns? Are you sitting here today certain that you're following Jesus? Or are you sitting here today not sure? Are you ready to actually make that commitment to follow him today? How about your friends and family who don't follow Jesus or do not know him? Will it be like the days of Noah and Lot for them? You know, it would be tempting to let our ears and eyes glaze over what we've heard this morning in this message because we've heard it again and again. Like the pre-flight safety spiel, we hear on flights, we've been here, we've done this, we know it, we get it. But let's take this opportunity again this morning to remind ourselves and each other of these big truths. The day of Jesus' return will be obvious and clear for all to see. So don't be deceived by those who claim to know when he's coming back. It will be a day that our world will be unprepared for, but believers need to be prepared for. It will be a day that reveals our true heart's love and what that actually is and whether we will turn back to the things of the earth. And it will be a day of great division between believers and unbelievers. Are you ready for it? Let me pray and ask God to help us to be ready. Our Heavenly Father, help us please by your Spirit to believe this word, to believe what your Son Jesus has said, to not just tick them off in our heads, but to actually truly believe them in our hearts so that it will compel us to live lives of readiness today. We pray, Father, that you will reveal to us with insight and wisdom beyond what we can see 
to see the, the, the heart's treasure, to see our heart's treasure, to see the things that we will elevate above you and desire more than Jesus. Help us to see these things for what they truly are and then to lay them aside. Father, we pray that you help us to be prepared. Help our family and our friends who don't know Jesus to hear his word, to come to a saving knowledge that they might be prepared. And Father, we pray that in everything that we do in our life and our choices and the things that happen, the readiness for Jesus' return will always be there. So we pray that you help us to do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.